Blog Talk Radio. Radio brings you The Haunted Sea with host Scott Martis. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Haunted Sea. I'm your host, Scott Martis. Our guest today is science author and cryptozoology enthusiast Matt Billy. Hello, Matt. Hi, Scott. Uh, I thought I would just read your bio that you sent me. Probably the easiest way to get the information out. So I'll, okay. uh, I'll read from that. Matt Billy is a naturalist, historian, and writer in Colorado Springs. A former Air Force officer, he was lead author of the NASA published history, The First Space Race, Launching the World's First Satellites. He wrote two well-received books on unknown animals, Rumors of Existence, 1995, and Shadows of Existence, 2006. His third focuses on marine animals and legends. He's published one creature thriller, The Dolman, and a fantasy, Raven Quest, and he's polishing a scientific thriller based on legends of Lake Iliamna. He has broad interest having written articles and papers on topics ranging from whale tracking the Martian soil and creating the top site on the prehistoric predator Dunkleosteus terrelli, a species he wrote about for prehistoric times. He appeared on two TV shows on mystery animals and blogs on the latest science and technology news at Matt Sci Tech Blog. He is a member of the National Association of Science Writers and the Society for Marine Mammalogy blog, www.mattbilly.com. Dot blogspot.com website www.mattbilly.com and Dunkleosteus page www.facebook.com slash Dunkleosteus Terrelli slash well hello Matt thank you for coming on the show and um, why don't you why don't we start by talking about this third cryptozoology book you're working on about sea creatures okay yeah, there, there was so much interesting uh, sea material I never used about new discoveries and oddities that um, I decided my third book was going to focus on that. And I told everybody some years ago that this book was going to be out in 2014. Uh, but you keep finding new discoveries and you keep thinking, well, that's got to go in, that's got to go out. Uh Plus, you detour to work on articles and novels and stuff. And what I call uh, sea sharks and serpents is 
still probably only about half done, but I will get there. Yeah, take your time. Um, I'm sure it'll be great when it comes out. I, I read your first book and I thought it was very good. Thank you. Yeah. And I've also read The Dolman. How'd you like that? Oh, I thought it was fine. Kind of reminded me, sort of flavored like the um, TV movie Gargoyles. Sort of a spin on that. Oh, I remember that. That was a good yeah. movie. Yeah. Well, how did you become such an enthusiast for Dunkley Osteus? Tell us about that. You know, I'm not sure. I'm not, I'm not sure I can really I can really date it. It wasn't ten years ago. I, I wasn't. It was just another cool species. But I happened to to start poking into researching it both for fiction and nonfiction, and discovered that there's a lot, not a lot written outside of scientific papers, and there's not even as many scientific papers as you would expect to find on you know the great apex predator of the whole Devonian era. So I kind of um, threw myself into it the last few years. I uh, let's see, I think I think five years ago I created the Facebook page and there's 2000 people liking that. So that is is really, really cool. Uh, I did an article summer 2018, I think, in prehistoric times magazine where I talked to uh, really all the, the top four or five people uh, phone or email that uh, that study this this uh, creature, and the knowledge is still evolving. It's like a shark where the skeleton is cartilage, and you're very lucky if you get something besides that that head and that front armor. So it's a it's a creature we don't know much about, given its uh, prominence and time. Uh, it had the heaviest armor, you know, that any fish has ever carried. It had the biggest tooth-like structures, probably, that a fish has ever carried. And and it's just fascinating that this, you know, I called it the first king of the oceans in the Prehistoric Times article. And it's just fascinating how you can find uh, new analysis on it all the time. Not a, not a lot, as I said. There's not a lot written there, and certainly not a lot for a non-scientist audience. But it's it's just fascinating, and I have, I think I have the the biggest collection of different uh, models and toys and books and so on uh, that I know of. On it, always looking to add more. I know of three related genera. There's Dunkleosteus. Dinectus and Titanectus. What is the difference between them? Do you know? Yeah. Uh, uh, Dunkleosteus uh, is at least 10 species. It used to be within Dinectheus. They, they were synonymous for a while. Dinectheus is still a valid genus, but with only one species in it. Uh, the other one, our friend the Titan there, uh, was a close relative, but it may have fed... Uh, it may have been a filter feeder rather than a monster hunter killer. Now, for years now, you've been working on a book based on the idea that Dunkleosteus survived in Lake Eliamna. 
and you actually sent me a draft copy of one of the older versions. Is that still in the works? That is still in the works. I am, uh, as I like to say, cannonading the ramparts of agents and publishers. You know, it, it is going to come out. It was fascinating to take these two threads because I had written about, I'd written nonfiction about the giant fish stories from Lake Iliamna, which is certainly one of the most solid, quote, lake monster, unquote, uh, stories in the world. And I'd studied this this uh, animal, and if you think about it, uh, several lineages survived the extinction events. The sharks did, and the, the coelacanths did, and the bony fish did, and the, the uh, lampreys, and whatever else you put with them in whatever hell they came from. Uh, so saying one more species survived, you can sort of draw some... Uh, some plausibility in there and that was a lot of fun well getting down to the real facts and what we have to work with that we know about at this point what do you think about the idea that the Iliamna monsters could be white sturgeons in my opinion that is probably what they are it's a there's never been a sturgeon caught there. There's been one in, down in the fairly close in uh, uh, Bristol Bay, I think, the uh, which is on the Gulf of Alaska. I suspect that a population has to be a small one uh, has maybe gotten a little cut off and tends to produce very big individuals, even if you round off for exaggeration and you know the usual mistakes. Take take the claims of. 20 feet down to 15 and so that's at the top end of white sturgeon and I think it's likely that it will sooner or later uh, something will drift ashore something will get caught in the net and and that's likely what it is the uh, although that's not you know that's not absolutely certain there's a there's a lot of interesting sightings in there and the uh, there, there are underwater camera experiments. There's at least one that I know of going on now. But uh, you never know what it could be. And that's, of course, where the fiction comes in. Uh, a fellow named Pat Poe, who was the salmon biologist for that lake, uh, told me, I don't understand why there isn't a bigger predator in that lake. Yes! So in other words, the, the food potential is there. It's seasonal, but it's predator. there. Yeah, okay. So theoretically, there's enough food there that there ought to be some larger predator feeding on it. It's the, it's the biggest salmon run in the world. And though, of course, it's, it's spring and summer, you have the... Uh, if, if, you if you hypothesized a predator that sort of lived a low-energy lifestyle like... Uh, like sleeper sharks do part of the year, and then was active with the mating and the egg bearing and so forth, or live bearing or whatever, mm -hmm. uh, during, the, uh, during the months when the food is plenty, it kind of works out. So well, it's very was, intriguing. There was a scientist 
marine biologists associated with Lake Iliamna that was credited as starting the idea of lake monsters being Greenland sharks. Can you, I don't can't well, remember was, his name. Well, Jeremy Wade suggested it on his TV show. I well, remember is, that. This is before Jeremy Wade. This is like maybe seven, eight years ago. I remember the guy's first name was Bruce, and I can't remember his last name. Champagne. No, Bruce not Bruce Champagne. What, no, what this is guy is, is a fisheries biologist up at Lake Iliamna. And I can't remember his last I, name. But I, I do no, I can't remember. Let me see I, if I can find it online. Hang on hmm. a second here. Okay, I, I don't think I've heard that. How long have they known that there were uh, an indigenous population of seals in Lake Iliamna? You know, we've, we've known for a long time. I mean, the, the natives hunted them long before white people came. Uh, it was only, I think, in the last 30 years, I'd have to look up the paper. It's somewhere in these stacks of papers. 10, 15 years ago, maybe, that they established that this was a resident population. They weren't coming in and out through yeah. the Quechac River. Well, that certainly gives credence to the idea there might be something else unknown in there. Yeah, okay, Bruce Wright, got it. There you go, yeah, Bruce Wright. Anchorage Daily News. Yeah, there you go. I, I, I knew, I just couldn't remember his last name. <laughs> yeah, I, I, uh, I, I have that, you know, somewhere in my mess of stuff on the lake. But, uh, but I, I've no, I don't think I've ever contacted him. Actually, I've got to, uh, to remedy that. I need to talk to him. Yeah. Well, one thing I've noticed about the reports from Lake Iliamna, they seem to have the recurring. Uh, thing of, of large dorsal fins on a fish-like animal. And neither the Greenland shark nor the uh, white sturgeon have that prominent dorsal fin in the middle of the back like that. That's an unusual thing regarding the, the reports from uh, Lake Iliamna. Well, it's a mix. That shows up sometimes, and sometimes it's more of a, more of a hump thing or a serrated thing. Uh, sturgeon would be good suspects for serrated. You're, you're right, oh, the sleeper true. sharks, you're right, the sleeper sharks tend to have low dorsals. So, you know, the reports that mention that put a little extra mystery into it. Yeah. So, of the reports from Lake Iliamna, which are your favorite individual reports that you find the most impressive? Uh, let's see. One that had, I had missed completely was on, was in, uh, Wade's TV show. He he had an interview cooked there with an anthropologist who was flying over the lake and saw something like a, a giant sturgeon. I hadn't I had not uh, heard of that particular witness before. Uh, I talked to a uh, bush pilot named Tim Laporte, and I'm sure you've heard that name in in connection with it. Uh, and he described it as. Uh, 12 to 14 feet based on a, a boat he was familiar with seeing. And one of his passengers was was supposedly a fishing game official from Michigan, although I don't think we have that name. Uh, but 
talking to him, the last thing he remembered after the splash was seeing this this big vertical tail, you know, sweeping side to side, sort of slow and majestic, which is really, really cool. Uh, well, I it, just it, brought up... Oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. I just brought up a, a timeline history of the sightings. Mm-hmm. And it looks like the earliest one is from 1942. Yes. Uh, some of the uh, Bush pilots and reportedly uh, Navy pilots who were flight training over there uh, reported something of the sort. Uh, Babe Allsworth. Yep, who, that's uh, the name listed here. Yeah, I saw a school over 10 feet long. It's funny that the color he mentioned, he described it as looking like dull aluminum. It's surprising that that turns up once or two, twice more. Well, now that sounds like the coloration of some kind of salmonid. Could be. And we know from the fossil record there were really giant salmonids during the middle part and later part of the age of mammals before the ice age, so... There's another possibility, less remote, yep. you could have some kind of surviving relic giant salmonid is a possibility, too. Yeah, the, the interesting thing about Eliamna, and, you know, about 10 years ago, I decided to write a novel that that took the one of my favorite genres, the prehistoric survival thriller. And, of course, you know about that. Um and said, okay, uh, real people, real science, what's something that hasn't been done before? And Iliamna, and I looked around quite a bit, Iliamna is the only place in the world that seemed plausible. You've got 900 feet deep, you've got 1,000 square miles, you've got a population, permanent population of only several hundred residents scattered around this thing. There's no road. You know, it's just pretty much in the middle of nowhere. And if there's a giant fish anywhere in the world that we haven't found, that's kind of the perfect place for it to be. So most of the population around the lake are indigenous people? Yes. Uh, yeah, there, there's a, a mix of, of Klinket and Denaina and uh, Yupik around the uh, the lake. Very, very few white people until the last couple of decades. And they're very heavily subsistent on um, a maritime existence out of the lake for food? Oh yeah, uh, fishing in the, in the lake is one of the main uh, industries both for the local people and of course for the, the tourists who fly in, the sport fishermen who fly in. Uh, there is plenty of other game around Lake Iliamna, yeah. there, there's caribou and uh, so forth for those who, what, uh, who like what, that. What fish are the sports fishermen primarily fishing for? Well, the fishermen, sports fishermen like uh, to come in in the summer when the, the king salmon are running. That's everybody's favorite. But you've got to uh, You've got all four species, I believe, of American salmon in there. Plus, there's uh, char and rainbow trout yeah. that can be worth your while. It, it's really 
a pretty amazing place. The only thing that keeps it from being overrun uh, is, again, the remoteness and the fact that you have to pretty much have to fly in. Which is are there expensive, any, of course. Are there any cases of belugas getting into the lake? Yes, there have been some uh, historical uh, beluga sightings. I don't know when the last one was. It's not a regular thing. Yeah. Uh, but they, do, they have shown up. Yeah, well, that happens up in the St. Lawrence River, close to Lake Champlain, too. There was one that swam all the way to Montreal. <laughs> um, so, <clears throat> beyond Lake Iliamna, are there any other lake monster reports that you give credence to that you find somewhat compelling or interesting? Iliamna is the only one where, where I would personally bet money on something being there the the other you know the major monster lakes i guess you might call them okanagan and uh, champlain you know there there's enough sightings to wonder a little bit about you know whether there's a, there's a at least a fish bigger than than you thought uh in there at least uh, in Champlain, we do have a population of resident lake sturgeons that are known to get seven feet long. So, you know, then, if you had a, a couple of outstand, uh, you know, outsized lake sturgeon, might be a potential answer. Makes sense. Yeah. Well, let's talk about some of the more compelling. Um, Sea serpent reports like the Valhalla monster. Give us your take on that. Well, that's that's a, a really fun subject. You know, whether we ever find anything or not, it's uh, you know the quote sea serpent unquote, which everybody agrees is not a serpent, but hey, it sticks. the The gold standard was that that sighting 115 years ago by. Uh, the two British uh, naturalists, Nicole and uh, Mead Waldo, off Brazil. And the the drawings they did at the time of what's either a long neck or a long forebody held well out of the water uh, with a prominent dorsal, it doesn't exactly match anything. But the report is so good that... It's really, really hard to see how they could have been mistaken. And if, if you, you know, sometimes I think if that one report was definitively explained, I would give up the whole business. Mm -hmm. But as it is, I can't help wondering if there's a big eel or eel-like fish still down there among the sea serpent data. Yeah, well, the Valhalla monster, the two best answers, if you take the report at face value that I could come up with is some kind of plesiosaurish-like turtleish reptile or a giant fat-bodied eel of some sort. Yeah, and of course we all love plesiosaurs. We'd all love it if if they were if they were alive, but they did manage to you know drop out of the fossil record without leaving anything we found. So I'm I'm not inclined to believe that that they are still around as much as I'd like to be wrong well the three 
answers that have been put forward by the skeptics to explain away the Valhalla monster are first you had Richard Ellis's idea of a giant squid holding its tentacle up out of the water. Then you had the idea of a thermoregulating sea lion with its flipper up in the air to look like a dorsal fan. And then the latest explanation that's come along is some kind of a turtle, a sea turtle, with fishing gear attached to it, which might explain the dorsal fan. So, personally, I find none of those explanations adequate to explain it away, but that's just my opinion. Yeah, I don't like any of those. I, I corresponded with Ellis some, and yes, if a squid did that, it could look very much like a monster at the right angle. Uh, but there doesn't seem to be any possible reason for a squid to do that. Uh, I think the uh, the sea turtle, yeah, it just seems to me they would have recognized that. You know, they said they had a very good look through binoculars. And uh, the seal, well, the dorsal fin's all wrong. It's kind of squarish. Yeah. You know, or, or like a ribbon on the back. So, you know, they, the big thing against the Valhalla report is there's nothing else as good, you know, yeah. in, in all the years before and, and since. But it's yeah. still there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, <clears throat> oh, what was I thinking of? I lost my train of thought here. Hang on a minute. Uh, well, I lost my thought there. But uh, <laughs> I know you've done some research on the infamous Pensacola sea monster attack. What is your opinion on that, and what has your research led you to think about that? Well, uh, gosh, corresponded once with the uh, with a relative of of one of the boys who said they they all believed this this was accurate, um, but uh, I don't ever like to accuse. A man of lying unless I know he's lying or I know him so I, I'm hesitant to call Mr. McCleary a liar but I don't believe that this happened the way the way he's describing it uh, you have to assume that you had a fish that looked or a, you know a, a creature that behaved in a way that such creatures have never been reported to behave, if that makes sense, you know. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's some things in the in the uh, in the report itself I don't like. He he gives a sort of a good description of the head, despite it being uh, pitch dark with no light sources. Uh, I I really don't think we're going to. Uh, find evidence for that one. Well, McCleary died in 2016. I am still in touch with his son, and his son doesn't know too much about it. So, well, um, and it wasn't in any of the original original reports to the Coast Guard or the or the media. Yeah, it only cropped up some years later, I think, in Fate Magazine. Yeah, so, three years after the event. But the whole drowning part. 
That is verified from the newspaper. Oh, yeah. yeah, it is. Just sea monster aspect of it that's in question. So I, we don't we don't know what really happened. Obviously, something traumatic happened, and he may have been under stress and panic, and uh, hysteria may have led to him to partially hallucinate something, or maybe they were attacked by a bull shark or some other similar animal, and maybe he just, from the traumatic stress of it, misremembered bits and pieces of it. I don't know, you know? That's possible. There's entirely the possibility that he believed it was true. And yes. fine. So I don't know. I mean, I will say this. There are reports of anomalous long-necked creatures in that whole stretch of the panhandle. And I'm sure you're aware of some of those, too. Yeah, and some off the East Coast off the St. John's yeah, yeah. River, too. Yeah, all up and down the St. John's River. Uh, and then you had that weird carcass that was supposedly found around 1880, the New River Inlet carcass. That could have been a basking shark or a mutilated yeah. whale. We just don't know. But it certainly had a large body and what looked like a long neck with a missing head. So I don't know. You know? Right. And you know the, the the little joke Mother Nature plays on us with basking sharks and the way they de decay yeah. so that they don't look like the original shark at all. They yeah. look like a long neck thing. Well, I, I think you did a blog on the Zia Maru carcass and because... I had an open mind on the Zio Maru carcass. You, you accidentally assumed I was a creationist. I wasn't angry. I was just, I Did thought I it was hilarious. Do that? Yeah. You don't remember that? I'm sorry. If, if it, yeah, no, I don't remember I, it. I, thought, and I wasn't mad. I, was, I thought it was hilarious that you would it, think it, just because I took up from the Zio Maru carcass that I was a creationist. But I, I must have. I must have conflated you with someone else. That, yeah, that's anyway, all I can think. So I apologize. Correct. That's all right. It's all we're water under the bridge. Uh, you corrected it. So, but you know, if you really read the scientific papers on the Zia Maru carcass, there were a few holdouts that said, "Hey, wait a minute. This may not be a basket shark." Yeah, it was basically one guy. One, one. Uh, well, I, I forget a few. Two or two or three. There's um, this paleontologist um, Yashinori Imazumi. Oh, no, wait a minute. Oh, God, their names. I always get them mixed up. Anyway, there's one of them that was a paleontologist that specialized in plesiosaurs. And at the end mm. of his paper, he said, there is no definitive evidence to decide whether this was a shark or an undescribed reptile. He didn't say plesiosaur. He said undescribed reptile, which left that door open. And then there was the ichthyologist, um, Not Fujio Yasuda, the guy who took the pictures, but uh, oh, I can't remember their names. Anyway, this other ichthyologist said that he thought, based on the measurements, that the rear appendages were in too posterior position to be a match with any known species of fish. Now, that's not much, but that's two of the scientists that wrote the scientific papers that said, well, we're not sure. So you can take that for what it is, but that's 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 what I was talking about. You know, there is just a small, tiny residue of questioning, not much. But 
Yeah, I, I tend to write that one off as a shark. Yeah. Well, most people do, and I understand why. You know, most of the evidence points in that direction. However, I do take a contrary stance, you know, sometimes to my detriment. <laughs> um, well, I hope you're right and I'm wrong. Well, it's at this late date, I doubt we're going to have any kind of a breakthrough. So, But getting back to the idea about there being similar monsters in the panhandle of Florida, why don't you tell the audience about the Thomas Helm signing of uh, Fort Walton? Well, now that was just weird. That was back 1940-41, I think. Or it was during the war, and Helm had been uh, let out of the Navy as, as an invalid after being shot by a zero at Pearl Harbor as he fought it with a rifle, which is sort of an amazing story for anybody. Uh, what he and his wife described from their... Uh, from their sailboat was a long neck, not not very long, a few feet at least, with a round head on top that was flattened, not not like a seal, but he described it as looking mostly like a giant cat, earless cat head might look. And I I never know what to do with these 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 outliers. You know, nobody else has reported exactly the same thing ever as far as i can tell uh so it's just out there you know it, it seems to be a decent uh a, a sighting in good conditions by a fairly well-qualified observer and you just don't know what to do with it, it you know it just goes into a file yeah mark the closest thing I could think to match up with that would be uh, Odeman's hypothetical long neck seal would be the closest I could come to trying to identify that. Well, that takes us back to the beginnings of, uh, of modern attempts to, to collate and understand and try to figure out if, if a sea serpent was real, what is it? And Odeman's, as I recall, shoved everything into this one rather silly looking super long tailed uh, long necked seal uh, like I said it, it's just a mystery and likely it'll always be are you familiar with the um, Santa Clara incident off the Carolinas in 1947 yes what's your opinion on that I think that's another one that's in the unexplained file right now. I mean, they, they described that they had run over something brown and about 60 feet long. And, uh, you know, obviously there's a lot of thrashing and spray and so forth. And they might have been mistaken on some of the uh, on some of the details. But from the report itself, as it stands, nothing stands out as, oh, this was a whale. Oh, this was a squid. So, yeah. you know, it, it is a little bit mysterious. And the uh, most frustrating thing with sea serpents, of course, is the way they, the reports, or at least the good reports, tail off uh, as you get into the modern era. Yeah. And you can say that's, well, ships are faster. Ships very rarely have lookouts uh, or don't have the kind of lookouts they used to because they got radar and other things. 
but it's, uh, I don't know, it's not looking too good, but I think there is still, in it, like I said, in the eel or eel-like fish idea, I think there is a decent possibility there is still something hiding under all the legends. Hopefully, yes. Um, now, one thing that has persisted up to the modern time that is very intriguing are these constant uh, discoveries of new species of big 12. You want to talk about that a yes. little? Oh, gosh, I think we have three species just in this uh, in this century. Uh, beaked whales are a really interesting analog, you know, if you're talking about uh, big, unexplained uh, creatures. Now, part of it is because you can have it beached right in front of you, and some of them are so similar to other species that they take a long time for, for experts to look at the teeth and the DNA and all the rest and say, oh, this isn't True's beaked whale, this is Sowerby's beaked whale, or this is one we haven't seen before. The, uh, I think that there are probably a half dozen species that are uh, basically just known from, uh, from strandings initially. Now that nowadays there are a lot more sightings at sea because cetologists look for them. But the uh, the really cool one was uh, Berardius minimus, which is uh, Japanese fishermen off the the east coast of of Hokkaido had always known there was one beaked whale that looked darker than the others. They called it the raven, but nobody really had an idea it was a different species until one stopped up on. A beach in Alaska, and that was a really cool uh, sort of chain of events you can trace. You know, a high school teacher, science teacher saw it. He didn't know what it was. He called a seal biologist he knew and described it to her, and she didn't know what it was, and she called a cetologist. Uh, and, you know, they, everybody looked at the pictures, and it was like, no, they're this doesn't look right. It doesn't look like anything. And they were eventually able to uh, find some other uh, strandings and match them up. In fact, one there was a skeleton of it hanging in a high school gym in Alaska. And everybody just assumed it was some known species. Uh, so that's, that's just a fascinating example. And I, I have talked to a lot of cetologists because I've done... Uh, paper and other things on whale tracking the last few years and nobody thinks that all the beaked whales are necessarily accounted for and we must emphasize these are air breathing animals yep they have to come to the surface so even if they like deep water and they dive a lot you know yeah i mean you know so this kind of puts the kibosh on the idea that oh if there were unknown air breathing animals we'd know about them I guess not. It does introduce an element of doubt. You know, that, that uh, you can't say categorically that there's nothing, you know, that we know there is nothing like that out there. So what, do you, what is your opinion on the possibility of there being unknown populations of coelacanths that we don't know about spread over the ocean? Oh, I think that's highly likely. I mean, you had the first uh, uh, catch off South America, and then you had them 
in uh, in and around Madagascar. And much later, they, for a long time, it was thought the South African one was a stray. And it turns out, no, there are more on the the African coast. And then that, uh, that fortuitous discovery uh, by two scientists walking by a fish market in Indonesia that led to the third population. And I don't remember if you were at the... Uh, the cryptozoology conference that was in San Antonio, San St. Augustine a few years ago. No, I knew uh, about it. <laughs> someone described a so far fruitless, you know, search for, for more coelacanth populations, but you're stretching an awful long ways from, from South Africa to I Indonesia, you know, thousands of kilometers. And it's hardly unlikely that there are more uh, populations like that? Well, the way I've read it in the scientific literature, the theory is, is that the reason the um, Komoro species and the Indonesian species got split apart millions of years ago is by the fact that the continent of India was moving north and one population wound up on one side of the moving continental plate and the other one wound up on the other side and that's why they diverged makes sense yeah um, so <clears throat> the most conservative people seem to think that probably your most fruitful areas to look for unknown large marine animals are in the beaked whales unknown types of sharks giant jellyfish, and cephalopods. What do you think of that? I think that's, that's a, uh, a pretty good list. I think there is, there is no way we know all the sharks. I mean, the first shark book I read when I was a kid, it was like there were 200 species. And just a decade or so ago, there were 350. And now we're sort of somewhere north of 500. Of course, the new ones are mostly, you know, small deep water creatures you wouldn't think of as being sharks at all but i would not at all rule out there's a couple of, of sizable sharks left to find uh what's the second one you mentioned jellyfish oh i well you mentioned beak whales and as i said there were there were um I don't think anybody is sh feels sure we, we've gotten all of them. Uh, I had that, that fortuitous little bit in the two books I wrote that in, in 95, I talked to a uh, scientist named Karen Forney who described a, a beaked whale that didn't match any of the classifications. And uh, I talked to her again in 2005 you know, when it had been found beached and had been classified. And that, that was sort of very cool. So there may be more of those. I also don't know what to think of Wilson's whale, to go off on a tangent for a moment. Sure. I, I have asked if that was um, a blackened whale with a, a little bit of white showing and a very tall, thin dorsal fin that uh, Edward Wilson painted from life in about 1902. Now, and is, 
is this the one that has a head like a sperm whale or a, a pygmy sperm whale, but a, a dorsal fin like an orca? Yeah, it's it's kind of a blunt head and a, and a very tall, narrow dorsal fin. And I thought it, it was probably the, uh, the very rare, uh, one of the rare orchids. I forget if type C or D is, is the rarest one down there because it's got small spots and uh, other I less identifying features than than most orcas but the uh, uh, I've talked to a couple of the cytologists who are real experts on killer whales and they say Wilson's whale was too far south they don't go into waters that cold so who knows uh, jellyfish. The jellyfish one is interesting because it basically comes down to, to one report, doesn't it? The one about the uh, the ship that got one stuck on its bow, basically. Oh, the Kiranda. I've yeah. Heard story, yes. Yeah, um, and did he? Well, in 1989, there was a giant purple jellyfish that was completely unknown that was discovered, I think, in the Sea of Cortez. Called Chrysaora was you know which is a yes, a, a, yes. very well known but this was a an unknown species of giant purple jellyfish I mean the bell was huge it's like I don't know eight feet wide something like uh, that the, the species you're thinking of I think the bell is only about a meter wide but uh, there just isn't much to go on there, there's an old clipping of the uh, you know newspaper account of the uh, Australian incident and there's just not much there so yeah I, now that we can still find some large oceanic jellyfish yes that that wouldn't surprise me but i don't think there's there's evidence for monsters i mean something with a with essentially no brain can only coordinate itself up to a yeah. certain size well now speaking of brains cephalopods appear to be some of the most intelligent animals in the ocean. Yeah. So I wouldn't be surprised at all to learn there are a lot of large cephalopods that we haven't found yet. Uh, definitely there are a lot we haven't found. Uh, how big they are, you know, nobody nobody knows. I don't think we have good evidence for, for giants ever since we got... All of cryptozoology got disappointed by the... Uh, the St. Augustine uh, carcass being identified. But, uh, yeah, there, there are some reports of, of really, really big ones, and you don't know. I mean, cephalopods are still very weird to us. Uh, a lot of people have made the remark that it's almost like an alien intelligence, they're just fascinating creatures. Uh, people like Dana Staff, S-T-A-A-F, uh, have been writing books on recently on how smart they are and how uh, how clever they are when they're when they're set with a problem. Yeah. Um, so, what is your take on the Gloucester sea serpent, the the famous New England sea serpent? Case. Well, I know there is, there we had, uh, you know, a, a bunch of sightings. Uh, 
you know, totaling easily 100 plus witnesses in that area, you know, around 1817. And I don't think that one has been entirely explained. There are individual reports that when you look at them, the, the one that's, there's one I was reading this morning where he said, well, there were 50 uh, loops of it above the surface. No, come on, that's got to be a school of something else. Yeah, uh, yeah. But there are, there are some, there, there is a new book breaking it down as, as being mostly large fish snagged in fishing gear, but the book's ridiculously expensive, so I don't have it. By Robert France. I know the book you're that referring to. Yes. yes, I have not read that. I'm waiting for a used copy to show up somewhere. He's written several papers also about the idea of large sea turtles getting caught in fishing gear and being mistaken for monsters. Like the conrit might be a uh, with fishing gear all over it. Yeah, the... Um, uh, one so of the hardest familiar. things. To, I'm sorry. Please go ahead. Oh, go on. No, go ahead. I was saying one of the hardest things to do if you're attempting any uh, analysis of any possibility that some creature we call the sea serpent exists is that so many of the good sightings are so old. Yeah. I do think there was. I don't think the uh, the whole Gloucester thing has been entirely explained. There, there are some weird ones in there. Even Ellis said, uh, and of course this was a couple of decades ago, but even Ellis said that uh, it's hard to believe something unusual wasn't going on. Yeah. Um, we were talking about the Valhalla sighting as being the gold standard of sea serpent reports. Well, from my own personal perspective, having talked to Marvin McCamus, who was a pilot for the Alvin Submersible and him telling me about his sea monster encounter in the Bahamas in 1965 is one of the most impressive cases. It's um, an intriguing case. Yeah. I mean, you had, for a while there, there was nothing except, and I forget the sequence where, where books came out, but in... Uh, Victoria Cajarl's book on Alvin, he just says, you know, I saw 40 or 50 foot of a monster and didn't say anything yeah. else about it. Yeah. Uh, and then in Charles Bowitz's, one of Charles Bowitz's uh, books on the Bermuda Triangle, you know, there was a much more detailed account where it was clearly yeah. a plesiosaurus type of animal. Yeah. And, you know, I don't know. Again, I, you know, I have no reason to doubt the man's honesty. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, unfortunately, I wish I had a transcript or a recording of the phone conversations that we had back in the 90s, but I don't. You know, all I can say is that I spoke to the man, and he he said that uh, Berlitz was wrong about it, the date, 1969, because the album had been sunk. And it was unavailable in that year, but he said the year was 1965, but that the, the, the bulk of what he said in the Berlitz book is accurate, that it did look like a plesiosaur. Remind me how deep that was, though. It seemed awfully deep for a Oh, I can't remember. They were down, they were down 
<clears throat> inspecting an underwater listening array that the Navy had called Artemis. Yeah. And I can't remember off the top of my head what the depth was, but it was deep. It was in a place called the Tongue of the Ocean. Yeah. Very close to Andros Island. But I yeah, can't so remember the depth. Let me, uh, a, let me open up my PDF and I'll tell you if it says about the depth. Hang on. Okay. Should come up on it pretty yeah, soon. Yeah, 5,000 feet. It's really hard to believe a plesiosaur had any business down there. Well, the thing is, alive. there's evidence of decompression syndrome on fossil plesiosaur uh back vertebrae so they know they were deep diving and when they know that leatherbacks and elephant seals can dive yes yeah, yeah. it says five thousand feet here yeah but what does the other man on board say has anybody ever tracked down well, uh let's I, see captain I, bill rainey he's dead he died in 1985. okay so he'd been dead for 12 years before I ever contacted McCamus. And how I contacted McCamus is there used to be a thing called Yahoo People, where you could punch in a name and it would give you a list of people with that name and their phone numbers. And just on a lark, I punched in Marvin McCamus and come up with like three of them. And I called each one. I said, you know, are you Marvin McCannis, the former pilot for the Alvin Submersible? And finally, this one in Port St. Lucie, Florida said yes. And I said, I told him who I was. And I says, look, I want to ask you about this alleged encounter you had with a sea monster on the Alvin. And he told me the whole thing. Absolutely blew my mind. And the coolest, the coolest thing I have is a Christmas card from him from Christmas of 1997 and I was able to look at his handwriting in the Christmas card and find another sample of his handwriting from some kind of Alvin related article and they match so there you go that's the best proof I have you know you can either say I'm telling the truth or call me a liar but that's the truth yeah and again I don't call him a liar, but it's, it's weird where details sort of get added afterwards. Like maybe your mind's filling filling them in. Maybe you saw a, a big leatherback turtle at a depth where you absolutely didn't expect it. Well, one of but, the one of the things he said was that it resembled a swimming utility pole. So that would seem ah. to imply that it had a really really long neck and was kind of long and thin. But the other thing he told me was that after they saw it through the porthole, they tracked it on sonar for a short period, and then it was gone. I hadn't heard that either. Yeah. So, you know, again, so when, it's one of those reports, it's like Helms, it's just out there. Nobody else has claimed to see a plesiosaur, you know, deep under the water ever. Yeah. Well, as unlikely as some people think the idea is, one thing to consider is that outside of sea turtles, all these Mesozoic marine reptiles gave live birth in the water. 
so they wouldn't be tied to coming up close to shore and crawling up on the beach to lay eggs. Now right, that's, we know now they didn't. that's a small factor, but it is something to consider that if there is a population of these animals we don't know about, they could be reproducing out at sea in the deep water. We just don't know if it's possible. They could, and, and uh, I know I'm coming up on the end of your time here, I think. We can go as long as you want to. Oh, okay. It, yeah, it's no problem. Yeah. You know, what I come down to, and I've quoted this a lot, but nobody put this well as, as well as Richard Ellis did a long time ago, which is if I were a betting man, I would bet against such a thing existing, but I would be delighted to lose my money. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, time will tell, you know? Yeah, if, if eventually we are going to know more and more of the deep sea fauna and the, uh, you know, we had this census of marine life, this decade long effort that just dumped thousands of new species into our laps, mostly little invertebrates, but not all. So I don't think anybody thinks we know all the fish or all the uh, cephalopods. So having been in the Air Force, what is your opinion on UFOs? Oh, that goes back a ways. If I was to say that... Uh, The best way I can put it is that have people seen things that are still unidentified? And yes, they have. Is there concrete evidence that aliens have ever set foot here? No, there isn't. You know, I, I do tend, uh, gosh, what was his name? Uh, fellow with Aviation Week. Uh, big skeptic on UFOs. Folk class, that's it. Class yeah, wrote a book suggesting that there were larger more long-lived equivalents to ball lightning that formed sometimes in the in the uh, sky. And that actually would explain quite a few of them. So I don't know. You know, there, there's zero evidence that anybody can point to as hard evidence, you know, that an alien has ever dropped in. But there are individual unsolved sightings. Was there a time when you were younger that you were much more sympathetic to the idea? Oh, of course. You know, I grew up thinking all of these things, so whether it was sea serpents or aliens or whatever, you know, were, were real things. Yeah. So you what get is more your nuanced opinion? as you get older. Yeah. Well, of course. I Even I've done that myself. Um, what is your opinion on the possibility of relic hominoids? It is possible. It is extremely unlikely that, you know, they're around, they're in North America and nobody can get a, a piece of one. Nobody can get a, uh, you know, find a dead one or get a, sooner or later, you know, one is going to get hit by a logging truck or shot by a deer hunter or, or whatever. And it's just, just a decade, as every decade passes with nothing new, just more, more of the same, 
it seems to me that the, the possibility diminishes more and more until you get like uh, uh, Nessie, where I think the possibility is diminished to zero. Now, that's not to say there are no big primates left at all. I think the uh, the the Orang Pendek in, in Sumatra and surrounding areas has a very good chance of being a real primate. What, I don't know. Uh, but that is, that's certainly the the most likely, in my mind, of all the, uh, the hominids or primates that have been put forward. Well, why don't you tell us about your fiction books? Give us some background information on those. Well, I've always liked uh, writing fiction, but I, I never sold anything. And I got off on the, uh, the nonfiction first, and then I sort of circled back around. And I wrote uh, The Dolmen, Dolmen being an English megalithic tomb, for those who haven't heard the term much. I got back, came up with that one because I thought, how would you write an old-fashioned, you know, creatures chasing people, people chasing creatures with a brand new, with a creature nobody's ever done before? And so I came up with the dolmen, which is uh, using uh, uh, corrigans, which are creatures from English legend. And there's about a dozen kinds of things labeled with that name, but, you know, I picked the ones I wanted. And, you know, loose in, in modern Los Angeles. And it was just a lot of fun. It was, it was fun to put yourself in this, the position of these things that had uh, woken up from, a, uh, from an illegally imported English megalithic tomb. I think the moral of the story is if you're going to import something like that, you ought to sift through the dirt because you don't know what, uh, eggs or what what are the kind of status something very strange could theoretically be in and I lived in Los Angeles for five years I went to college at USC and it was just really fun to visit all the old haunts and put monsters in them and to think yeah. about okay these things just woke up there's only a handful of them they're in an environment they don't recognize at all you know they're they're blundering around uh, they're 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 smart. They're they're at least chimp level smart, but they're blundering around here in this weird thing. And when some one of these tall primates sees them, the only thing they can think of is, "Oh, we've got to kill that one." And that was just a ton of fun to uh, to write. And I imagine you had to put in a lot of work to make a realistic theory background. To make it plausible, to sell it, to yeah. Not... And of course, that's fun. You know, I love doing research. Uh, a couple of biologists read it and said, "Yeah, this this more or less works." Uh, and of course, the the amazing artist Bill Rebsman. Uh, I think we only went through two or three uh, drafts of the cover of of what one of these things looked like against the Los Angeles skyline. It's, it's a wonderful cover. And, yeah, I, I'm still very proud of it. Yeah, well, I, I, I read it, and I liked it, too. So. And I actually liked your, uh, 
Lake Iliam, the Dunkleosteus book, too. So I'm hoping at some point you get that out. I will. I will. It's just a question of, of uh, picking which, which opportunity and, of course, finding the opportunity. And, of course, there are things you do now uh, that you're trying to be sensitive. Uh, there are challenges to fiction writers because, you know, this is an area where all of the inhabitants or most of them are Alaska natives from uh, four tribes. So you want to find it, someone in, that's where the power of the internet helps writers so much is that you can find people, you know, from who are you pick or, or whatever, who will read it for you and say, yeah, this, this guy got us right. Yeah. But uh, that one was an awful lot of fun because, you know, you're reconstructing the food chain and the lifestyle. And one of the things that always bugs me about some prehistoric creature thrillers is it just sort of shows up and you don't know where it's been. And you can work out some, some of the good uh, dunk fossils are, are from Alberta and some of them are from uh, Ohio. And you, you can sort of work out a migration in, in stages where they would have gotten into the Gulf of Alaska and then the, uh, the new predators, you know, things like orcas, yeah. sort of bottled them up. Well, now, have you used any speculative evolution to change your modern hypothetical Dunkleosteus from what we know in the fossil record as they are in your book? Well, creatures, fish that that become, uh, that make the transition from salt to freshwater, and there's, there's quite a few that do, they tend to become smaller, and it's not a hard rule, you know, it's not an unbreakable rule, uh, but we have uh, at least one, we have one Dunkleosteus in the Cleveland Museum that's estimated at almost 29 feet long. It depends sometimes how, how you think the tail is structured, but, you know, is in the orca size range. And I just thought it was, it was more practical for these creatures in a, in a lake where the food is there, but it's seasonal and they have to sort of adapt to low food periods uh, that they would get a little smaller. Well, a five-foot Dunkleosteus would be terrifying. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it would. Uh, It could put some hurt on you, definitely. What do they call it? The staple pulling from hell? uh, That was another line from Richard Ellis that I've been shamelessly stealing ever since. Is that it looks like a giant staple remover. Yeah. Well, that's what they look like. The the only thing I can think that has a comparable head that's alive now is an alligator snapping turtle. Yeah, that's not a bad uh, analogy. You don't have actually the the biting plates fitting into each other, but yeah, I've seen alligator snapping turtles and man, they're mean. Yeah, absolutely. You don't mess with them unless you want to leave leave a piece of your hand behind. Yeah, you know what happens? These these guys that go noodling for catfish in Oklahoma, every once in a while, one will get a snapping turtle on their hand. Bad news. Yeah. the uh, There are a couple of 
box fish and African fish that have ad adopted to some degree armor, but nothing like the, the placoderms did, nothing like this massive, you know, two inch thick uh, armor over the whole head and the forebody. It's just sort of, uh, it's just an amazing creature. There just was nothing like it. Well, yeah, it's almost like the external skeleton of uh, insects, sort of. Kind of, because because you did have that, uh, you know, the the head armor being basically the skull. the The brain, they think, was just had sort of cartilage protective capsule with its own uh, suspension ligaments or whatever cushioned. Didn't they have a hinge that. at the back of the head like a coelacanth? Yeah, there, there, there's a uh, there's a cephalothoracic joint joint between the, the, the head and the back armor. And it let the thing open its jaws very wide and open and close them very fast. And the cheekbones, the cheekbones had muscles they would spread them outwards so you had a suction effect. So if this thing was close to you, uh, forget it. And the bottom jaw was hinged yeah. in the middle, kind of like a shark jaw, right? A little, it, it's hinged uh, forward of where you'd normally see a bony fish uh, jaw hinged. So, yeah, there was uh, just a, you know, the, the, I called it, the, the original apex predator, the hypercarnivore, that it fed on anything it wanted, nothing fed on it. Yeah. Just fascinating. I can't see how anything could have got through that armor. And uh, now, if you were, you, a shark or something could damage it after the armor, of course. But that yeah. assumes that you lived long enough to get that close. The, uh, now, Lee Hall, who is a uh, uh, curator who just left the, the Cleveland exhibit, where he was an expert on these things, says there are a couple of individual bones that indicate that the 29-foot specimen was not at the top of the charts. Huh. Most of them, most dunks that have been found uh, most adult dunks are like, you know, 19, 20, 21 feet. They're about the size of modern great white sharks. But there were definitely some outliers. So you think it's possible they might have got 40 feet or close to it? Uh, little 30s, maybe. Ah. You know, like 10 meters. Yeah, okay. Most of them were probably down like 7 or 8 meters. Yeah. I would imagine they were probably territorial too, and there was probably a lot of infighting. We don't know about territorial. We do know that there have been uh, boluses. They tended to spit out, you know, the undigestible parts of things uh, with other dunks, and you know, dunk plates that have been cut through by other dunks. There is, um, they didn't fight continually. There, there are not a lot of armor plates showing that kind of, of scratching, but apparently they were opportunistic. You know, if you came along a, small, a smaller one, 
Okay, that was lunch. Yeah, so they were definitely cannibalistic on occasion. Yeah. Yeah. All right, is there, there any last-minute thoughts you want to add before we wrap it up or anything? I don't think that uh, that there's any new uh, sightings or whatever I want to throw in, but the the ocean... We love that it is mysterious. And we have, you'll hear sometimes that, you know, we've explored 2% of the ocean or 5%. What that actually means is that 2% of the bottom has been seen by cameras or by human eyes. Uh, you, you can't really put a figure on how much you've explored of a giant rolling, moving body of uh 1.39 million kilometers of water the uh you know there could still be some surprises out there and we like to think that there there are some spectacular ones they, there may or may not be spectacular creatures out there but there are definitely unknown creatures well, I would imagine that the really large, interesting animals that we're looking for are living in the midwaters, not on Could the bottom. Could be. Yeah. Could be. I mean, you, you get into uh, food webs and so forth, and sleeper sharks can make business on the very bottom out of fallen uh, whales and fish and crabs. Yeah. So forth, and you've got whole food chains that aren't dependent on photosynthesis, like the black smokers, the vent fauna. Yeah, yeah, that's very interesting stuff. stuff. Living around them that we don't know about. We're still finding new types of, you know, smokers and vents and so forth. Yeah, and you know, just bursting with with life that nobody has seen before. That's a fascinating area of research. Absolutely, and we didn't know about it until 1977. Yeah, and, and then it was by accident. Yeah. Thank God for Bob Ballard. <laughs> well, the Alvin and uh, Ballard and, and uh, you know, Cameron has funded so much of this stuff. Yeah. It's, it's just... It's just great, and and I published in the blog the other day, one of the uh, that uh, Kathy Sullivan, who used to be head of National Oceanic and Atmospheric Atmospheric Administration, had pulled off a double that nobody had done before. She had gone 600 kilometers above the Earth in space, and then she rode a submersible down to was it. It was 35,000 feet plus, but it was about 10 kilometers Yeah, you know, to, people, to the very bottom. A lot of people don't realize how deep the ocean is. The Challenger Deep is six miles deep. Mm -hmm. It staggers the mind. Yeah, we can't really picture that. Yeah. But there's a lot of exploration yet to be done. Absolutely. And we're going to find some things. Yep. I encourage the exploration of the oceans and space, too. So. 
Yeah, they're, they're similar in some ways in that they're, the environments are very different, but they're both extremely hostile. Yeah. Uh, somebody uh, had the great illustration that uh, if you are at the Titanic's depth, which is 12,000 something, I think, there's an Empire State Building made of solid lead sitting on your head. Yeah, just the amount of pressure is just a staggering to imagine. That's doing doing uh, deep sea exploration. That's what you're fighting is the water pressure. Yeah, the environment wants to kill you. Yeah, absolutely. All right, well, I guess we'll wrap it up if you want to. Um, Thank you for coming on. Well, thank you very much. And I suppose since a lot of uh, cryptozoology fans follow your podcast, you know, I'm always willing to trade research with, you know, somebody who's found something new or needs help on uh, on something I might have handy. Yeah. Because one of the great things about this community, I don't call myself a cryptozoologist anymore. There's just too much baggage attached to that i, I totally understand that people uh supporting each other and exchanging information and so forth you know is one of the good things yes all right you have a you have a nice day and thank you for coming on thank you for having me on and i'm always willing to uh, come back again and talk Absolutely. some more yeah take care Radio brings you The Haunted Sea with host Scott Martis. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly.